Welcome to episode 45 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we are going to be continuing our author career series by talking about the business of being an author. Yeah, the, it was a little bit hard trying to decide how we wanted to talk about this part, because there's, you know, there's the artist part of being an author, right? You know, the part of you that creates books or novels or short stories or whatever, the part that like sits down and creates but then the thing about being an author nowadays especially is that you also have to be the person promoting and selling your work. Mm-hmm. Um, so and it's it and it actually does take up a lot of emotional and mental space and and also sucks up a lot of time. So Basically, the thing about being... So there's you as the writer, I guess. Well, I guess I'll delineate it that way. There's you as the writer, and that's the person who's the creative, the one who produces work. And then there's the author. And basically, as we'd mentioned before in like the previous podcast, that the author isn't kind of like an entity separate from you as a person... Basically, when you are an author, you are essentially a small business owner. And the business that you own is your books. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the responsibilities of being a small business owner. Like, I actually like kind of like small business management and administration Um, I like organizing those types of things. I like thinking about structure, how things are, how businesses get structured and money and stuff like that. Now, obviously everybody's situation financially and, you know, just like on a day-to-day basis is going to be vastly different. Like if you're the kind of writer who, who, you know, puts out like four books a year, like I think Nora Roberts in her heyday like put out mm-hmm. like four books a year. A lot of romance authors are on a very tight publishing schedule. Um, and then there are those that don't produce novels or books for years upon end. So like everybody's output is going to be different. And so how the way everybody manages their business is going to be different. But there are, you know, so the, again, this kind of all goes into promotion and, you know, your brand and your identity as an author. Like, all of that is is part of your responsibility as a small business owner. You know, so if I were, let's say I wanted to open a bakery. And, you know, so you have to come up with things like the name of your bakery. And then you have to bake the goods. You have to decide what you want to bake. Um, you have to come up with a logo for your bakery. You're going to have to find a way to get the word about your bakery out to people so that people will come and buy your goods. It's more or less the same thing. And if you are traditionally published, your publisher is your business partner. Or if you want to put it this way, kind of like an investor in your business, you know, because they do, they, you know, that's exactly what an advance is. They're investing money in the author, and hopefully once that author gets published, they see returns from that investment. So being, that's, okay, that's if, if you're if you're traditionally published. If you are self-published, you're going to have to do all of this work on your own. So stuff like finding an editor, finding a copy editor, finding a cover designer, finding somebody to design and format your book, finding somebody, possibly hiring a publicist or a marketer or, and some people love this kind of thing. Like a lot of the more successful indie publishers or indie authors really thrive 
on on doing that. They understand how to promote themselves, how to market themselves. They do market research. There is a writer named Rachel Aaron slash Rachel Bach. She writes under those two names. She has been traditionally published, but she also self-publishes. And she writes a really great column every Wednesday on her blog where she discusses, you know, her, like, just kind of really interesting data about the business of earning money as an author. And not just, like, the really mercenary parts about marketing and stuff like that, but just, like, interesting data about what the advantages are of having a series versus a standalone about, you know, all like really interesting kind of data compiled there. So I'll put a link in the, in the show notes if you guys want to go check that out. But that's kind of what I wanted to talk about, about having to separate (laughs) the writer, the emotional self from the business of being an author, the small business of that. So some of the responsibilities that you have as an author. The amount of emotional time and space that you spend on decisions is going to be greater than you might think. Like decisions about your cover, decisions about catalog copy, decisions about a marketing plan, decisions about, you know... And that takes up a lot of time. And even and the, the thing that actually does take up the most amount of time is the decision, because a lot of this comes with second guessing. A lot of this comes with you sitting and being like, am I making the right decision? Is this the one that's going to reach the greatest amount of people and be the best business decision for my book? Or... Is it just because I have a feeling about or I just don't like whatever it is based on my own preconceived notion of what I think it should be? I don't think I've mentioned this before, but when I first got cover comps for Winter Song, I did not like them. (laughs) Um, My publisher sent me four different cover concepts and my agent and I were talking about this and they were not at all what we were expecting. And I think both my agent and I were expecting something a little bit more, well, (laughs) for lack of a better word, goth, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like kind of underground. moody. Your original cover comps were not goth at all. No. Um, my original cover comps for Winter Song were very commercial, and I don't mean, and I don't think commercial is bad. Like I think commercial no. is good, but my original comps for Winter Song were commercial to the point of being generic, or at least that's what I felt. Mm-hmm. Like there was nothing about these covers that I felt accurately portrayed either the content or the market. So. I have a little bit of an advantage when it goes into discussions like this, having worked as an editor and having been part of these business meetings and discussions and talking with the author. And I did a lot of research as an editor. Like I would go out into the marketplace, into Barnes and Noble or into a bookstore and look at the covers on the shelves. And, you know, a a YA title has certain elements that kind of subtly cue readers in to being YA adult covers are, you know, like contemporary women's fiction has a certain look. Historical women's fiction has a certain look. Like mysteries and thrillers kind of have a certain look to them that kind of subtly cue the audience into what kind of book it is. And my original cover comps didn't really say one thing or another about what audience it was for. Like, I couldn't tell if they were trying to reach a... Because at the time, Winter Song was still an adult title. So I couldn't tell if they were trying to reach, like, a contemporary women's fiction audience. Which I don't think my book is really for. Like, I, you know, not that women or people who read contemporary women's fiction wouldn't enjoy it. But that's... My book is a fantasy novel. So... So I, I, I spent a lot of time going back and forth with my editor about this and because um, I, I didn't want to go back and be like, I hate all of them, start again. 
Um, so I went back and I kind of picked one of the four that I thought had the most potential and sort of gave my suggestions. You know, I, I gave them font choices and ideas. I gave them imagery. I gave, you know, and we worked together as a team to come up with the cover concept that we have today. And I really love, I love the cover of Winter Song. I think it's striking and I think it gets at what the content of the book is in a bit more of a metaphorical manner, but I, I felt like it was an accurate, like I didn't feel like people would pick up a book with that cover and then be completely surprised by what the contents were. Um, or just today I got uh, kind of drafts for cover copy and, you know, because if you're working with a traditional publisher, the editor will generally send you this kind of stuff, right? If they're good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, you know, your editor and your publisher will want your opinion. They may have the final say, but they at least will want your opinion. And you do, like, you have to spend a lot of time. And of course, right now, as you guys know, I'm drafting book two. It would be great if 100% of my energy and focus would was on writing book two. But I, and that's writer JJ. That's writer JJ who wants that. Who wants that time and energy and emotional space to work on her second book. But author JJ does not have that luxury. Author JJ has you know fields emails about subrights or copy or promotion or this or that. So that's kind of like learning to balance that and learning to not let it get too overwhelming is I think something that I'm still learning how to do. And so I feel like I'm struggling and failing horribly at it right now. Um, and you knew it was coming cause you've been on the other side of the fence. I knew it was coming. And it, it, that's the thing about writing, I think, or this business in general, like you can understand something from an intellectual point of view, but until you're actually doing it, I feel like it's entirely a different thing. It's like yeah. how I knew writing book two was going to be completely different from writing book one, but like actually writing book two is it's just, I have a completely different set of problems than I did like storytelling wise, plot wise, emotional, everything, everything about book two is completely different than the process of writing book one. And everyone told me this about writing your first book under contract. So I like knew it in my head, <laughs> but I didn't feel it in my soul, at least not yet, <laughs> until, at least not until now. <laughs> um, other things that I think fall under the responsibility of being a writer. So we talked about promotion. And the honest truth is you can promote as little or as much as you want. I don't think you should be required or obligated to do more than what you are comfortable. Mm -hmm. And, but promotion gives you, especially when an author does promotion, it gives a book a better chance at visibility on the market. Like as much as we like to think that writing a book and putting it out into the world, you know, it's like casting a line out at sea and, you know, maybe some fish will find it and you'll catch one. It, you know, you, you can think of it that way, but your sales aren't going to be, you know, you're not going to make a lot of sales that way. You're not going to make back the investment your traditional publisher, if you have one, you know, put into you. And even as an indie writer, you know, you have to think about the costs that you've already sunk into your book, you know, paying an editor, paying a designer, paying, you know, a cover artist. Those are what we call sunk costs. So you want to at least sell as many copies to at least make up for that. So you break even. So we kind of get to the part of the podcast that is going to be hard to talk about because it's going to be different for everybody, but it's money. <laughs> yep. So I think Beth Revis actually has pretty good posts on the YA subreddit 
about what she calls sunk costs because and and Beth has been publishing for a couple years now so she's had time to figure out what is worth spending money on what is not worth spending money on in terms of her career and in terms of promotion in terms of things like that but that is something that you do have to think about as a writer like if you finally get your traditional publishing deal if that's what you've wanted and that's you know you you have it you can't really anymore just sort of let go of it you can't disappear (laughs) Mm -hmm. and not work on that book you know ideally you want to be your publisher's partner in promoting your book and getting the word out and doing all that sort of stuff um so even though you have an advance you still have to worry or not worry you still have to consider about return of investment return on investment of your time because time is money and a return on investment in actual money spent on swag on travel on conferences um so things that cost money let's talk about the things that cost money the things that i think are worth the return of investment are generally things like panels on conferences or um, cons. What's conventions? There we go. Like, <laughs> what does that stand for? Cons stand for conventions, right? I think they stand for conventions. Yes. Um, your publisher won't send, won't always send you to a lot of these, and a lot of the author appearances at conferences and conventions are funded by the authors themselves. And the return on investment kind of depends on the size of the conference, how close you are to it, basically. Um, If it's within driving distance, that's kind of great. Um, The people who will be there, because essentially if you're going to a conference or a con as an author, those are opportunities for you to network with other authors. And that's really the return on investment that you're getting out of things like that. And I cannot overstate how important connections to other authors in this industry actually is. Like I know, And I know so many of us are introverts and we find it difficult to mingle. That's why a lot of conferences have something called BarCon, <laughs> where after like the day's programming, everybody goes to the bar and then has a drink and that's when they talk. Um, when people think of networking in a business setting, they always tend to think of like, or at least my mental image was initially like handing somebody my business card and think of me if you're looking for X, Y, and Z. But networking And publishing, because it's a business built on readers and relationships, is really just making friends. Like connecting with other people in the the industry on a genuine, friendly level. It doesn't... I think most of us are really uncomfortable being completely mercenary. And I think a lot of us in publishing also kind of shy away from the people who come off as being very mercenary and only promoting their book. Uh You know, so you go to these conventions and you go to these festivals and you just, you attend panels, you talk to authors and you, ideally you've read their books and you say, I really loved your book and I want to thank you for writing it. Or, you know, I really love this character. They're like my book boyfriend or book girlfriend or whatever. And that's, a way to form genuine connections with other people in your industry that isn't like, hi, I have a book coming out next, you know, next winter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think any sort of in-person event is actually a a really good return on investment. So some of the biggest ones are like your regional SCBWI or RWA or MWA. Okay, I'm going to try and see if I can remember what all these acronyms stand for. (laughs) SCBWI is the Society of Children's Book Illustrators 
No, children's book writers and illustrators. <laughs> RWA is Romance Writers of America. Writers Association. Yep. And MWA is, I think, the Mystery Writers of America. And these uh-huh. are nationwide in the U.S. I'm talking about U.S. specifically, although some of these, yes. I think, do have international chapters. Um, like, I think SEBWI is international. Um, but these are nationwide organizations run generally by volunteers, and they hold regional conferences often, um, you know, a couple times a year, and you know, invite industry people like agents, editors, librarians, booksellers to attend whatever programming that they have. And they also often have workshops and things like that. Um, and honestly, your local chapter will depend on who's in it and who's running it. Like some of them are really close and some of them do a lot of excellent work and some of them are much less organized or, you know, just sparser because it's in an area that doesn't have that many people who are interested in that kind of writing. So again, it all sort of depends. But I think getting involved in a local chapter of a writing organization and paying those membership dues is probably probably a pretty good return on your investment. Other things that I think are a good return on your investment, um, bookmarks. (laughs) (laughs) So, and obviously you don't, you don't, you can't really do this until you have your book cover. Mm-hmm. But bookmarks, and I don't, like, they're good swag to give out as well, but I don't even just mean swag. I think bookmarks are excellent because you can keep a handful with you, and if you get to talking to people about your book, you can hand them a bookmark, and it has your cover, and it should have your title and the date it's coming out. And any sort of other relevant information like your website, your Twitter handle or whatever. And you can give that out in lieu of a business card. Mm -hmm. And it's functional. So people have a reason to keep it because they can actually use it as a bookmark in their books. So they're not as likely to just throw it away. Yeah, I think, you know, if I ever got business cards. Or postcards are another big one. Like, no. Yeah. No, no, no post. I mean, it's nice to like look at, especially if your cover is really nice, but it doesn't actually have any functional use beyond, for me, as the person who received it, beyond, oh, hey, that's nice. Uh-huh. You know, but a bookmark, I think, is extremely useful and a pretty good return on your investment. And I think it's pretty handy to have you have on you at all times. Also, you know, once your book is out in the world, keeping those, like, keeping a stash of bookmarks with you is actually pretty great because if you happen to stumble upon a reader and you don't have any copies of your books or anything to give or sign out, you have a bookmark to give them at least. Actually, this happened, I was at a book event in Charlotte with Carrie Ryan. We were there to support Renee Autier for the launch of her second book. And Carrie and I were there, and and some of the readers recognized her. And it's like, oh, I really loved your books. But, you know, Carrie didn't have any of her books to sign at the moment, but she had bookmarks with her. Um, So she was able to sign a bookmark for her reader and and give it to, you know, her reader as as a keepsake and pictures and whatever. So I think bookmarks are pretty great return on investment. Other things that are... I don't know. I guess get, it depends on what you get out of them. But writing classes and workshops, I think, can be a fairly decent return on investment. But it depends on the kind of sh- kind of class that you choose to take. Because, and you also have to look at it in the way of like, if you take a writing class, what are you looking to get out of it? Because if you're looking to get a book deal out of it, then it's not a good return on your investment. But if you're looking to get a support group or critique partners or new skills or new way to approach writing, then it is a good return on your investment. But it it does depend. I think 
classes and seminars and webinars and online classes and things like that that are related to the business part of being a writer. So like taxes, contracts, like mm-hmm. our dear co-host Kelly does. Mm-hmm. She does contracts classes. Classes on how to read your royalty statements. If somebody offered oh, that, I would take that uh, tomorrow. Oh, yes. <laughs> I've been in the industry for 10 years now, and, and still I look at royalty statements sometimes and my eyes start to cross. <laughs> they're really... they're And the thing is, like, you want to be informed on that because you want to make sure that you're getting what is owed to you. Uh-huh. And it's not that, that publishers... I don't, I don't think publishers are malicious. Like, they're not necessarily trying to nickel and dime you but they're humans like anyone else Mm. it could be a clerical error it could be and a lot of it too because now in my new position or I guess it's not new I've been there for over a year but in my current position um, as a contracts manager I'm working really closely with our accounting department and I'm working really closely with our royalty accountant. And through that working relationship I've learned a lot more about the way that royalties work and for so much of it Um, there's, you know, there's a royalty tracker system. There's all different kinds that are employed by different houses. Um, but you know, there'll be like an automatic royalty tracker that people will plug in the contract terms and then things will just kind of automatically happen. But any deviation from that has to be tracked manually because the system can't necessarily customize things to various degrees. And so if your agent has negotiated royalties for you that are different than the publishing house's standard, those are all being tracked manually, um, you know, with differing degrees of, um, of, of meticulous. I mean, everybody's always meticulous. If you've met a royalty accountant, obviously (laughs) there or any accountant, (laughs) really super meticulous people. (laughs) Um, and so, no, I don't think publishers are skimming off the top and I don't think anyone's trying to nickel and dime you, but where there are humans doing jobs, there's room for human error. And so you should know how to read your royalty statement and absolutely pay attention to that when that comes in. Yeah. And I, and I do want to talk a little bit about royalties Now, if you're, again, self-published, your royalties and your income statements are going to look entirely different. I know a lot of different retailers like Amazon send their authors like income statements monthly, I believe. Mm -hmm. So you're going to, it's going to be a totally different ballgame. But for royalties from a traditional publisher, first of all, read your contract Mm -hmm. to see what you are paid on. (laughs) Yep. Um, because, and, and what falls under or what, so not to get overly complicated about it, but essentially authors are paid on, and we're going to talk about print only for the time being, because we can talk about eBooks, but they're calculated differently. And that should all be out in your royalty statement as well. Um, but you, an author is paid on the number of copies shipped not necessarily the number of copies sold at the register. Mm -hmm. This is often why you, if you are an author with an established book track already, that some often that your royalty statements and what you see in things like BookScan differ because BookScan will log point of sale. So BookScan, like, you know, if you buy a book at Walmart and that gets rung up at the register, that's, the sale that gets reported to BookScan. But that's not actually what authors are paid on. Authors are paid on number of copies shipped. So, you know, say you shipped 8,000 copies to Barnes & Noble Mm -hmm. and all the different Barnes & Nobles across the country. And all those different Barnes & Nobles across the country sell about, uh, I don't know, 5,500 copies um, so in BookScan, you'll see 5,500 copies sold, but you'll be paid on that 8,000. Sort of, because there'll be yes. your reserve against Reserves returns. against returns. <laughs> so because publishers are paying on books shipped and not on books sold, they're going to hold an amount of money that you're, you've been quote-unquote paid because um, you know you're getting paid at the point of ship. So they'll they'll withhold some of that money 
as a re- as a reserve against returns because if they were to pay you on 8000 copies shipped and then only 5500 are sold and the rest of those books are returned to the publisher then the publisher would have to come to you and say okay now you owe us money you have to pay us back for these books that we paid you for that actually haven't been sold which just becomes a ridiculous back and forth of who owes money to whom and it's it's nonsense so the way that they've gotten around that is they hold back a reserve against returns usually it's about 20% of whatever your earned royalty would be in that period and make sure you check your contract yeah because your contract will specify yeah it should your contract (laughs) if your agent hasn't negotiated or if you don't have an agent your contract might say a reasonable reserve against returns which is up to interpretation as to what the reasonable amount could be that's usually the initial language that's in there and then once an agent gets in and creates a boilerplate they name an amount because agents jobs are to make things as tight as possible. Industry standard is 20% for reserves against returns to be held and then released each subsequent period. So if you're paid royalties twice per year, they'll hold your 20% for that first royalty period. And then in the next royalty period, they'll release that 20% and hold the new 20% based on whatever your royalties earned were for that second period. So they won't just hold yeah. that money indefinitely. It will be a constantly shifting process. Right. The reason that there is this strange idea of reserves against returns, it actually exists in pretty much all industries that operate on sales. So, you know, like soda or um, grocery or things like that. Grocery stores stock these products, and if at the end of a certain period of time, like after the expiration date or whatever, and it's not sold, a lot of them return these products to the producer or, you know, to the warehouse or whatever and get a certain percentage of the money back. And that's exactly how it works in publishing as well. The thing is that when publishers ship books, Retailers like Barnes and Noble and Amazon and, you know, all the other bookstores can return any unsold copies of your books to the publisher and get money back. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, they can get refunded for the overages, essentially. That's why your publisher holds a certain percentage as reserves against returns, because they have to refund that money back to the retailers, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so learn, like read your contacts and contracts and try and understand what all of this means. Maybe we should do a podcast about like reading parts of royalty, you know, statements, the yeah. contract and, and yeah, trying to explain. Yeah. Cause your royalties too will include your sub rights information. All your earnings will be on this same royalty statement. So it's, it's a royalty statement, but that's also kind of misleading because it's all money earned. We'll get funneled yeah, in there. Yeah, it's all money earned. And the way, you know, the way royalties are calculated are also different. Industry standard for print is generally a percentage of list price. We mentioned this in our money podcast before. But you get a percentage of the retail price, not the actual price the publisher sells the book to the retailer at. Mm-hmm. Because your book might be on sale, for example, $10, but your publisher, because they sell copies to retailers in bulk, will sell them for seven dollars, mm-hmm. you know, because and then the markup happens in the bookstore, yeah. But you get a royalty on the retail price, mm-hmm. the markup price in the bookstore. But there's another calculation, and this usually is for, for ebooks, but it can happen with some smaller publishers. But on net, it's yep, net's received. <laughs> Yeah, and when you're being paid royalties on net, it's important to go in and look at your high discount percentages um, mm-hmm. because some publishers can sell books for you know to wholesalers and retailers for uh, you know up to sixty percent off, seventy five percent off, and if you're getting paid on net, you're earning significantly less money on those high discount sales than you otherwise would. The 
ebooks are generally calculated on net nets received. So basically, for example, again we're going to go with industry industry standard for ebooks is 25% of nets received. That means that the publisher pays you 25% of whatever profit they make. So ebooks nowadays are on an agency model. So you know, the price is set, whatever, and the retailer gets, I believe it's 30%, the publisher gets 70% of all the sales. And of that 70% that they get, 25% goes to you. That's mm-hmm. grossly oversimplifying net. But, but yeah, that's you know, basically the gist of it. The gist of it. So it's, you're not getting a percentage of each sale, you're getting a percentage of your publisher's net profit. Um, so that's kind of the way money goes in that way. I know this is a lot of information to throw at you guys, and I'm sure a lot of it is sounding like Greek to you. <laughs> but this is something you need to keep in mind. You can't kind of put your book out into the world and then blithely trust that everything will come out fine. The most successful business owners are the ones that read up and do research and keep on top of their expenses, their, you know, their expenditures and their overhead and, you know, income coming in and business expenses going out. Like the most successful business owners do this. And so do the most successful authors. Um, now the bottom line can't or at least for most of us who are creative types, the bottom line does not dictate what we produce. It's almost it's impossible because you can't predict what what the market will like, what what will hit, what won't hit. So you know you can't because publishing takes so long, you can't actually write to whatever trend or to whatever market that's out there. On average, a book takes about eighteen months to publish. So you you can't do that kind of like quick adjustment to the market. So as a result, you know, writing to the bottom line is not something that I would suggest anybody do in their writing career. But keeping in mind the sort of the sort of stuff that works financially for you and how and hopefully the stuff that works financially also works for you creatively. It's not like these things are mutually exclusive. Finding that sweet spot between what you want to write and what you want to put out into the world and finding something that the market responds to does come with practice and it comes with careful management of the business part of being an author. Like I said, I know this sounds extremely intimidating, <laughs> and I apologize. I do like to think about this. I like systems building. That's kind of what I, you know, I, I naturally like to organize information this mm-hmm. way. I like to think about it that way. So I'm, yeah. It, True you know. story. When JJ <laughs> and I were roommates in New York, she is the one who taught me how to budget. Because I had no budget and all my money was just disappearing. And JJ was like, you need help. (laughs) And so she set me up with spreadsheets and the whole big thing and like held my hand while I panicked about being an adult. So, yes. Yeah, I mean, it all comes down to maybe this is where my cancer comes out. So Kelly and I love things like archetypes and Zodiac Mm -hmm. and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, both she and I are are cancers, um, although I'm often not perceived as one. But I like security. <laughs> I like feeling stable. And so for me, systems management of my resources makes me feel stable. <laughs> um, you know, and even even now, like the way my own finances are set up, I have like I have about four different six different bank accounts (laughs) for various purposes. Um, 
you know, I have a business account. I have a savings account. I have what I call living expenses account. So it's like all of my living expenses are covered. And then I have my regular checking account, which is kind of free money, mm-hmm. I guess, if you want to put it that way. But I also, like every time I get paid for writing, I also divide what I get paid into percentages. Like a certain percentage goes into my living expenses. A certain percentage gets invested and a certain percentage goes back into business. So I set aside a certain portion of what I get paid to, you know, for any business expenses that may incur travel, you know, swag or whatever, some of that. And then a small portion of it also goes into just for me because I sold a book kind of a thing. But that's kind of always the way I've thought about things like diversification. And, you know, this is not truly diversification, but, you know, like proportioning out in in percentages what you have doesn't leave you scrambling. (laughs) And, at you know, when when the time crunch comes and it will come when you're an author because books will get delayed, you may not make your deadline, or your editor may be late with edits, so your DNA payment gets delayed by X number of months, or, you know, a lot of things can happen, and, you know, it's not like being at a, you know, salary-paying job where you get a paycheck on, like, a reliable schedule. You don't actually have that. You get paid on signature, but your DNA is not a set date in stone. It's not like, oh, your DNA payment is six months from today. No, your DNA payment comes when your publisher decides that this is the final manuscript. And that can take a very long time, (laughs) depending on a multitude of factors. So writing income is neither stable nor consistent. So kind of giving yourself these sort of systems to manage your income and to manage looking at your writing career, at least for me, I find that useful and I find that comforting. Uh (laughs) I hope I haven't scared everybody (laughs) off and I hope I haven't like made everybody like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) No, this is important stuff to think about you guys. And if you're not thinking about it already, then it's time to start. Yeah, I think the sooner you think about it and the sooner you come to terms with it, I think the easier it will be to navigate this part of, of publishing. And this all this applies to any level of advance from very small to very large. You you know, being strategic about what you do with that money, I think is is pretty mm-hmm. important as opposed to just being like, "Woohoo, I got paid. Now it's all going to go into this yeah, fun no. thing that I wanted." Especially cuz taxes on it. we can talk about tax structures later (laughs) but for now we'll all assume that you guys will be sole proprietors meaning that you have not created a separate entity for your business Um, but when you are a self-proprietor or basically self-employed you pay twice the tax there's a self-employment tax essentially Because if you are employed by a company, your company pays half of the Social Security and Medicare tax. And you pay the other half, and that comes out of your wages. But when you are a sole proprietor, 100% of that goes to taxes. So essentially that's what people call the self-employment tax. So you pay more in taxes than you actually might expect. So the good rule of thumb is set aside at least a third of your money for taxes. At least a third, like maybe 35% of your money for taxes. Like stash it away in like a high yield savings account until it comes time to pay your taxes. And depending on how much money you make, to be completely honest, it may behoove you to pay your taxes quarterly, estimated taxes. (laughs) Again, we can talk about this in a more in-depth, specific pot podcast, but regardless of what level of money that you make, you do have to think about that. It's not free and clear, essentially. So do we have anything else that we want to talk about business-wise? I think we hit all the major points. Yeah, I mean, if you guys have any questions, Mm -hmm. definitely let us know what we can maybe focus a little bit more on. 
Um, like I said, it's a lot of information coming at you, and we do apologize for that. But I think, like I said, being strategic about planning your career and planning your business is going to be mm-hmm. helpful in the long run, even if it's overwhelming now. <laughs> so, have you been reading anything, watching anything, no. working no. on anything? Are we even still asking that right now? No. Well, I'm reading a book. You are. That's true. What are you reading? I'm reading Empire of Storms by Sarah J. Mass. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it's. I don't. Basically, I'm using it as my excuse to refill my creative well because, as you might have heard earlier in this podcast, I'm struggling right now with book two. Um, like plot wise, I'm struggling. Um, like a, a confession, you guys. I have said before that I'm generally better with beginnings and middles and utterly terrible with endings of books. Like, ending books, because I am a pantser, is often I get to, like, the halfway point and then I hit the sixty to 90,000 hole of I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know how to get to the end. Um... I have a completely different problem with this book in which I actually know what the ending is, but now everything else in the middle is this complete black void of I don't know what happens. <laughs> and I've never actually had this problem before. All of the other books I've written, and they're not published obviously, but all the other books I have written have had the same problem, which is beginning to middle, fine, middle to the end, I don't know what I'm doing. But right now I have beginning is okay generally beginnings are my strengths anyway i know where stories start and like the last so it's like the first 25 percent of this book and the last 25 percent of this book i generally have a pretty good idea it's the middle 50 percent that i'm like i don't know (laughs) all of my usual tricks all of my usual you know sitting down and, and the things that have worked for me in previous books are not working for this uh-huh. one. So I'm struggling. <laughs> um, and, you know, like I said, I usually don't read while I'm drafting, but right now I'm just like, I think I need to maybe just take the pressure off of me and just like maybe allow myself to read something and allow myself to absorb other media and maybe subconsciously in the back of my mind something will like unkink itself. And, you know, maybe loosen things up to help me figure out what what I'm doing. (laughs) Everyone warned me that writing your first book under contract is tough. And I knew it. I just didn't know in what way, specifically in my situation, it would Uh be tough. (laughs) Yeah. Oh god, the sophomore book. Oh, it's so it's so bad. <laughs> oh my god, it's so bad. <sighs> so yeah, that that that's me. I'm reading Empire Storms. I read nice. I read an ember uh, not the em- an, a torch against the night last week. Um and then this weekend my town is having a local book festival. So I'm going to Go see a couple of authors and, you know, attend panels. This is, again, this is free, though. But, you know, again, this is great return on investment. You know, this is an excellent opportunity for me to network, although it's mostly my friends, so. But still. (laughs) Yeah. So, if you aren't reading and if you aren't watching things... What are you doing? What am I doing with my time? (laughs) (laughs) I am investing a lot of time in something that I'm not ready to talk about on the podcast yet. Um, But hopefully, maybe in the future, in a couple of weeks or months down the road, I'll be able to talk about what I'm currently investing a lot of my free time in. Um, I am still writing. It's going slowly. I need to make that a priority again. We had so many social commitments this month um, that I feel like every weekend I was out of town. And for like long weekends, like we would take an extra day off. Like we had a four day weekend for Labor Day for a wedding and then another three day weekend for a different family event that we had to go away for. And so I just feel like I haven't been home (laughs) 
in so long. And then when I'm home, it's the week and I'm working. Um, so I've been writing little bits and pieces, but, um, I need to really kick that back into gear and still not reading. I mean, I read at night before I go to bed, but I'm just reading Harry Potter. I'm not, you know, which is like essentially not reading anything cause I know it so well. Um, although I was reading, um, I got the recent, I think they came out a year and a half ago or something like that, but they recovered scholastic recovered all the Harry Potter books in paperback. Yeah. With a different and, artist, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so we got a set of the paperbacks because I had all the original hardcovers from when they were coming out and the spines are all cracked and broken and the pages are falling out and it was <laughs> mine just, are all they, stained and it's terrible yeah, <laughs> you know they're missing the jackets and everything and so they were they're becoming difficult to read like if I want to read you know one of them the pages are all in chunks and whatever so we bought the paperback set and so I've been reading that, and I was reading Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and I was in bed, because I read for about 20 minutes before I fall asleep, and I, like, sat bolt upright in bed, and I turned to my husband and I said, they changed a line in this book. There's a line missing. And really? he was like, yes! They're recover of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and it's in the scene where um, Harry and... Lupin are talking about why Lupin wouldn't let Harry fight the Bogart in the Defense Against the Dark Arts classes. So he wouldn't let him talk about it. And mm-hmm. so Harry is talking to Lupin and he is trying to figure out, you know, why, why did that happen? And Lupin says, oh, well, I thought it was obvious, you know, if, it, right, it would be Lord Voldemort. Lord Voldemort. And yeah. in the original, I just pulled it up. In the original, Harry says, I did think of Voldemort at first, said Harry honestly, but then I I remembered the Dementors. And then the scene carries on from there. So I was reading that this time in my new edition, and you know, Lupin says, but I didn't think it would be a good idea for Lord Voldemort to materialize in the staff room. I imagined that people would panic. But then, said Harry, honestly, I I remembered those Dementors. So Harry doesn't say the line about thinking about Voldemort at first, which makes no sense because he says, but then, as though he was already referring to something. And at yeah, first weird. I thought it was just like a proofing error or a copyright error, like they were going through the text for the new edition and cleaning some stuff up, and this just accidentally got deleted. But they moved the dialogue tag is in a different spot now. It's in the middle of the sentence, whereas before it was between the two sentences. So it had to have been a deliberate omission. And it just makes no sense when it's... (laughs) But I have the books so, you know, ingrained in my memory, engraved on my heart. I've practically memorized them that I was reading it and I was like, nope, there's a line missing. And I got out of bed and I actually went and found my other old copy I oh, had to double check oh, right because I would do that too I'd be like wait a minute a deal and I was like no I need proof that I am correct and I am um <laughs> so other than reading that though no uh, not not reading anything new although I'm starting to kind of feel like I want to maybe start reading again after taking quite literally the entire summer off I think it was June is the last time I read anything I think um but it's fall, which is my favorite season. It's finally starting to get a little cooler here. It's getting darker, which is really depressing and upsetting for me. But as a result, makes me want to hunker down and kind of read and be cozy. So Yeah, I'm the same way. Yeah, when the seasons change, all yeah. I want to do is curl up and read a book, actually. I, yeah, over the summer, I read a couple books in May didn't read a single book in June. I read one short novella in July and then didn't read anything again until A Torch Against the Night last week. And that was like this long stretch of not having read anything, which is unusual for me because I'm almost always reading something. If I'm, you know, if it's not something I read before bed, it's something I'm listening to an audiobook. But I just didn't want to, and then now it's starting to come back. Like, I want to read new stories again, and I want, you know, I mean, for 
a while I just was like, no, I just don't have the emotional space for anything right now. So I don't know why that is, but it could be the seasonal change. And I think it could also be there are books that I have been looking forward mm-hmm. to for a long time that are coming out because fall is a really big season for new for for titles to come out. So it, it could be that too, like books, series that I've been reading for years upon years and books are, you know, being released, that kind of a thing. So, you know, but yeah, I, I do want to get back into reading again. Of course, I don't really have the time to do so, but. <laughs> right. Of course not. <laughs> it's like the worst possible time to feel like reading uh, again. Yeah, send me all your good thoughts, you guys. <laughs> I'm going to need them. It's gonna, it's, It's rough for me right now. Oh boy. So, all right. So then wanna let's talk about what you are saying and what reviews we've got going on for us. Yeah. I think it's your turn to read them. I think so. Yeah, I think it's whoever's the host is the reader. Come on, podcast reviews. Okay. We just read Mm -hmm. Wish I Was in Italy, so this is the next one. Okay. This is from Cheshire Keiju, a must for your subscription list. JJ and Kelly do a fantastic job with this podcast. I greatly enjoy learning about how the publishing industry works as well as their writing advice. I look forward to the recommendations at the end of each episode. as I always end up with new books, podcasts, etc. to add to my to-do list. Plus, I'll forever be grateful to the introduction to Hamilton. Well, Cheshire, I'm sorry that our recommendations haven't been as forthcoming (laughs) recently. (laughs) But you are very welcome for the introduction to Hamilton. If anyone is out there still listening to this podcast and has not yet jumped on board the Hamilton train, it's never too late. Just recently, I finally got my husband on board after a a year plus of me almost exactly a year right it came out in September last year and was on NPR yeah I think we literally recommended Um, it on our second pods on our first second podcast episode yeah um yeah so it, it after listening to it in the house with me and constantly me singing it the whole time he finally just texted me a couple days ago and was like okay it's I've got the bug I need it on my phone <laughs> so I had to help him download it yeah. to his phone it is um it's I great. am actually so Roshni Chakshi and I are going to another conference in Savannah in a couple of weeks and we're driving there from here in North Carolina. And she, I told her point blank, I was like, she hasn't listened to Hamilton yet. I was like, we are listening to, to this on our drive to Savannah. You don't have a choice. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're such a good friend. I mean that sincerely. Um, yeah, she was like, am I going to cry? And I was like, yes. <laughs> oh, totally. Totally. It's, it's amazing to me. That I still haven't gotten tired of the music. I mean, it will kind of come and go in waves. Like, you know, I'll go stretches of time without listening to it. And then, then like, mm-hmm. it comes back and I'll listen to it again. And I haven't gotten tired of it. I haven't... It, it, I don't know, because it's like normally like when I get into these, like, you know, I had like obsessions with different types of musicals and things like that. It's generally kind of like the short fervent period of obsession and then once right it's like an intense yeah quick passion and then and once then that fades. fades you know i still think i look at it fondly and i still listen to it time to time but it's hamilton is just different in that way like i don't ever get tired of it i don't ever not cry is the other thing because like a lot of times like if, if i've consumed sad media or i've read sad things like if i've read it enough times sometimes like i expect the sadness and i don't react like i don't cry but every single time i've listened to hamilton i have cried in the exact same spots so it, i don't know mm-hmm. there's something about this play and i know we keep overhyping it and i know a lot of people are like Oh, it's so overhyped now because now we're in like the backlash period of Hamilton, I guess. But whatever. <laughs> oh, and 
I guess the other thing we can put in our recommendations, as Kelly sent me earlier, was this link to this quiz about recognizing which character and song. If you could recognize a character and song from a single yo in Hamilton. <laughs> she and I did well. I got nine out of ten. <laughs> I did too. So, yeah. So we'll put a link to that as well if you guys want to take that, take that quiz. <laughs> That is all for this week. Next week, we're going to be moving into a publishing 301 series, and we're going to be talking about licensing and intellectual property. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website at penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, the author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.